Now more than ever, Californians are hearing about recalls and witnessing them happening at all levels of government. I'm your host, Alexandra Leal, and welcome back to Democracy Is, a podcast presented by California Common Cause. This week, we'll be exploring recalls. We'll be examining the history, impact, and relevance of this little-known corner of California's democracy. And we'll be looking at how we can improve the recall process to better serve our political system and our communities. We'll even have the chance to talk to a school board member who has survived recall about what that experience was like. In 2021, Californians faced a special election that they hadn't seen in almost 20 years. The ballot had only two questions, one asking if Gavin Newsom should be recalled from the office of the governor, and a second asking who should replace him in the event he was recalled. It was a simple pair of questions that dominated headlines and for months kept the nation's eyes on what California voters would decide. You probably also asked, why is this election happening if the governor's up for re-election in 2022? Why are there 30 people on the ballot, including D-level celebrities? Why are no Democrats running to replace the governor in the event he is recalled? Well, to try and shed some light on this issue and figure out whether or not California's recall processes really demand serious reform, we're going to take a step-by-step approach to the process and see where, if at all, it starts to fall apart. First, why do we have a recall? Not all states do. In fact, only 19 states allow for the recall of state officers. The recall was originated in California during the progressive movement around the beginning of the 1900s when reformers instituted the recall in addition to the ballot initiative system as a way to get around or remove insider politicians who had been corrupted by the railroads and other corporate special interests that, at the time, operated unchecked. If you wanted to recall an elected official, here are the steps you'd need to take. Let's say you are furious at your city council member and want them out of office immediately. First, you have to qualify a recall petition, which at the local level requires the signatures of at least 10 proponents or the number of signatures candidates are required to file on their nomination papers when they start a campaign. If you do that, you've got your recall effort started. The number of signatures and deadlines to submit those signatures depends on how many registered voters are in the district. Once you've collected all the signatures, the petition signatures are processed and inspected by local authorities and a special election is announced, which requires campaigning by both sides and will cost the city hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars. If you're thinking, this process is a lot, you're right, the process is a lot. But if you're thinking, who cares, this doesn't happen in my community, then you're probably wrong because what we've seen in the past several years is an explosion of recalls at the local level. These recalls are now more than ever targeting school board members in particular, with parents upset with policies in response to the COVID pandemic, as well as national politics playing out at the local level. From 2009 to 2020, the amount of recall attempts on a school board member ranged anywhere from 18 to 38. In 2021, that number rocketed to 92. And so far in 2022, there have been 47 recall attempts. So how did we get here? The recall has very deep democratic roots in American history. It was created for legitimate reasons, to keep corrupt and problematic elected officials accountable to the people. 
Our formal regional redistricting advocate, Kate M., had the opportunity to discuss the history of the recall with Joshua Spivak, a senior fellow at the Hugh L. Carey Institute for Government Reform. So the recall goes back all the way to the beginning of the country in some ways in uh, 1631 in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And it was actually discussed in the Constitutional Convention and it was voted down and it became a source of uh, a lot of discussion and debate in the uh, in the ratification debates in the states. Uh, Alexander Hamilton was a big opponent of the recall. The recall comes back. It's, it's one of the later provisions in some ways, but uh, it comes in. It's not even clear when it's first adopted. We always say L.A. in 1903, though we found that uh, San Diego in 1889 might have had it in its charter. Uh, California is the second state to adopt it in 1911 statewide. Oregon is the first in 1908. And then it uh, is used quite a bit in its first few years, uh, three times in the state level, and then it stops. And then there's no recalls for 80 years. Though it has been present in our politics for a long time, it was not until more recently that it has become a mainstay in conversations around accountability. Since 1994, it has been a more regular feature in California. Two governors have faced recalls and uh, six state legislators. So we see it more and more uh, operating more and more. California Governor Gray Davis, who served from 1999 to 2003, is the only governor in California history to ever be recalled. At the time, the public viewed the ongoing energy crisis and tight state budget as his responsibility. Noticing this, the Republican Party and People's Advocate, an anti-tax group, pursued a recall and gained support from Republicans, Democrats, and independents, making this effort a multi-partisan one. The recall attempt was successful. On the first question of the recall ballot, 55% of voters voted to toss out Governor Davis. On the second question, in a crowded field with 135 candidates, the most voters selected Arnold Schwarzenegger to replace him. After this successful recall election, the number of recall attempts gradually increased. In 2007, Democratic actors, specifically Democratic legislative leader Don Parada and labor unions, started a recall election for Jeff Denham, a Republican state senator. The recall effort started because Senator Denham did not support the state budget plan. In this case, the effort was unsuccessful, but it does show a growing trend of utilizing the recall as a political tool. Since that time, there have been recalls here and there of state legislatures and local politicians. In 2020, there were many recall attempts due to the COVID restriction and the pandemic uh, mitigation strategy. But what ended up happening was almost none of them got to the ballot. So they were actually one of the fewest number of recalls over the last uh, 10 years. However, despite the fact that not many recalls made it to the ballot, the impact of the exploding number of recall attempts has been severe. Throughout 2020, many public servants, most of whom are regular people trying to serve small communities for little to no pay, experience attacks on their career due to their position on topics like vaccine requirements and masks mandates. Though they may not have been recalled in the end, the deep impact on these officials and their communities cannot be denied. We'll hear that firsthand in our conversation with a local school board member later in this episode. 
And despite the growing number of recall attempts happening at the local level, attention on the recall really exploded when, in the fall of 2021, Governor Gavin Newsom faced a recall election led by the California Republican Party and other conservative actors to address their frustrations with Newsom's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic and other state policies. To qualify a recall against the governor, you need to have a number of signatures equivalent to 12% of the votes cast in the last gubernatorial election. Proponents of the recall against Newsom needed 1,495,970 signatures. They looked like they were falling short of that number, but went to court claiming that because of the COVID pandemic and how hard it is to gather signatures during a public health crisis, their timeline should be extended. They were given four more months and eventually collected about 2.1 million signatures. The Secretary of State found 1.7 million of the signatures valid, which exceeded that 12% threshold. The recall achieved a lot of things, but after the votes were counted, it didn't come close to recalling the governor. It distracted state government from other business for the better part of a year. It cost taxpayers $300 million as a standalone statewide election, even though Newsom would be standing for re-election in the normal 2022 elections. And it made California look like an oddity in the eyes of the national press. The recall effort lost 61.9%, to 38.1%, causing many to wonder if the whole enterprise had been worth the time and the money. With Gavin Newsom's 2021 recall election generating so much attention, recall attempts around the state increased, as mentioned earlier. Counting since 1913, over 100 years ago, 14% of all recalls were from 2021 alone and affected every level of local government, from school boards to county supervisors. Now, an increase in recalls might sound like a good thing because it's our democracy in action, right? And if a recall targets a legitimately corrupt, lazy, or dangerous local official, it is a good thing. Unfortunately, recall elections have a lot of downsides. If they go to the ballot, the election tends to be held off cycle, that is, as a standalone special election instead of consolidated with our regular elections. And that can mean that recalls usually get extremely low voter turnout and burden taxpayers with an expensive bill. And they can be a problem even if they don't qualify for the ballot. Last fall, the state legislature held hearings on the state and local recall. Lawmakers heard from local elected officials who were harassed by tiny minorities of people who were opposed to their choices on vaccine mandates or mask mandates or other policy choices. They used the very low signature thresholds needed to initiate recall attempt after recall attempt, all of which had very little chance of ever making the ballot, but trapped lawmakers in constant drama. But for many, the biggest problem with the recall is something else entirely. It can lead to an anti-democratic minority rule outcome. Let's imagine that elected official Smith is recalled, with 52% of voters supporting their recall and 48% backing Smith. In California, the second ballot question for the recall election asks who should replace elected official Smith. Of the five people running to replace Smith, the first candidate gets 30% of the vote, the second and third candidate get each 25% of the vote, and the last two candidates each get 10% of the vote the candidate with 30% of the vote would win the recall election and replace Smith as the newly elected official in question. However, if 
you're good at math and added up those numbers we read off, you'll notice that the candidate with 30% of the vote does not possess a majority, only a mere plurality of the votes cast on the second question. And more people, 48%, actually support the current office holder Smith. The way that recall elections currently operate tends to be costly and undemocratic. But recall elections can be reformed. They can be available when they are really needed to target corrupt bad actors and have broad community support and aren't just a tool of public harassment. They can be engineered so that they are held consolidated with other elections, saving costs and ensuring larger electorates. And they can be reformed so the replacement who takes office actually has majority support. The state legislature just passed and Governor Newsom just signed a bill that will accomplish some of these goals. AB 2584 would consolidate local recall elections with the first regularly scheduled state or local election, increasing the number of proponent signatures needed to initiate a recall petition. But the total number of signatures and timelines would stay the same. The bill also makes additional changes to rules surrounding recall statements and answers. But did the legislature get it right? Or is there more work to be done? And what is needed to reform the state-level recall system, which would need the legislature to put a constitutional amendment on the ballot before voters? We'll continue the policy conversation in just a moment. But first, let's talk about the human side of recalls. While it may seem like recalls only affect big political players, the reality is that they are, more often than not, being used to target politicians and community leaders on the local level. This is where a recall attempt or a special election can have the most direct impact and can cost communities the most money. To explore what a recall looks like on the local level, I had a chance to interview Sylvia Leong, the current board vice president of the Cupertino Union School District. Well, hi, Sylvia. I am so honored to have you on the podcast today to talk about recall reform. Um, and it's just such a pleasure having you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I you know, would love to know, why did you originally want to run for your school board seat? Well, you know, I always say that I'm just a PTA mom that fell in too deep. Uh, <laughs> But actually, you know, <laughs> um, in our school district, which is Cupertino Union School District, it's up here in Silicon Valley. Um, on our school board, one of our school board members had decided to run for city council. And when she won, it created a vacancy on the board. And so I was really invested in who was going to fill that role because I had spent the better part of the last decade getting more and more involved at the school level and in the classroom and in the district as a parent volunteer. And so I'd really seen where the district was strong, but also where it needed to improve. I knew I wanted someone who was going to put a priority on community engagement, social emotional learning, and holistic education. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that I could really step up into that role and help because I was really connected within the community as a parent leader and because of my own professional background working with students over the last 20 years. So I put my hat in the ring and the board selected me through a special appointment process. And then I ran for full election two years later, and I was actually elected as the highest uh, number of votes in the history of the district. And so currently I'm in the middle of my sec uh, second term. So what were the leading issues that you wanted to work on when you originally took office? Well, we're located here in the heart of Silicon Valley. 
um, in Cupertino, which is the birthplace of Apple. And so a lot of our families work in the tech industry where there is a high value on STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. You know, we're, we're known for being academically strong and high performing, which I'm really proud of uh, because we're able to provide these really good things for kids. But I've also seen how that kind of intense emphasis on academics can really come at a cost and that pressure to achieve can really impact the kids negatively. And so a big thing I did want to work on, like you mentioned, was centering that holistic education and focusing the district on social and emotional learning. I was also really aware that our district was facing one of the steepest enrollment declines in decades, you know, really due to factors that were out of our control, declining birth rates, high cost of living, especially here in the Bay Area, and a lack of housing options. And so for our district, and like a lot of districts, the funding is tied to the enrollment. So every year, if your enrollment is declining, then your funding is also decreasing, which means that every year the district is having to cut more and more programs just to pay the bills. And it was creating all sorts of issues and instability. So I knew we needed to address it and come up with some solutions that would bring back that stability, even if it meant having some really difficult conversations. Um, and having to be creative to solve some of those issues. And then, of course, you know, having that improved community engagement and wanting to be more unified, this is something that's really challenging because our district is actually the largest elementary district in Northern California, um, the largest kindergarten through eighth grade district. Did you end up getting to work on those issues specifically? What were the issues you actually ended up having to work on? There's three things that no school board ever wants to do. You know, one is to close schools, one is to change boundaries, and one is to govern through any kind of major emergency. But with little to no warning, we really found ourselves doing all three when the pandemic hit in March of 2020, because suddenly we had to shift our focus from education and academics to crisis management, and we had to redefine what school meant. This was really a situation of flying the plane as we were trying to build it, having to suddenly shelter in place and then pivot to distance learning, recreate an online school experience. And then when testing and vaccinations became widely available, schools had to pivot again to basically become health clinics, you know, organizing testing and vaccines and mass distribution and providing free lunches for all of our students. Because even here in Silicon Valley, we had families who were impacted by job loss, uh, illness, death, and food insecurity. And then when we did reopen, so much was focused on facilities and HVAC systems, reconfiguring classrooms for six-foot distancing, figuring out logistics of recess and lunch and keeping students in safe pods, really just trying to bring back some sort of normalcy for our students while also keeping everyone safe. And so for the 18 months that all of this was happening, it felt like there were constantly moving targets because at the time there was so much unknown about COVID-19. And every week we would be getting new mandates or new requirements um, from the different level of governments, from federal to state, whether it was CDC or CDPH or county guidelines. And when we tried to implement, they would change uh, as soon as we tried to implement them or the funding that we needed to make those adaptations either would arrive late or not at all. And so through all of this, trying to manage this crisis, our number one goal was keeping our students and our staff safe, healthy, and learning. But managing a crisis at the district level is really difficult when the country itself is also in crisis. 
The other issue that I ended up working on was school closures and redrawing school boundaries because of our enrollment decline. Uh, because the pandemic really exacerbated that decline, we knew that we had to look at closing and combining or consolidating some of our smallest schools. This issue was not unique to us, especially here in the Bay Area where the cost of living is so high and housing is limited and young families can't afford to move in. There were a lot of districts in our region that had to make the same difficult decision or are still currently in the middle of making these decisions. Um, and it's really, really difficult because nobody wants to close schools. You only do it when that's really the last option left. Those were the things that we ended up having to work on instead of uh, focusing on academics and education. It was really a matter of emergency management. When did you start to notice opposition to your tenure? Was it present from the beginning? And what issues motivated it? You know, I think every school board member gets their first taste of opposition when they vote a certain way on any single issue uh, or topic that somebody else degree, uh, disagrees with. It's just part of the job is having to make decisions and not everyone's going to be happy with the decisions that you make. But I, I wouldn't say that there was any organized opposition uh, to my tenure until the pandemic happened, because that's when we really started to see a breakdown in civil discourse nationwide and where schools and school board meetings became a battleground for this larger division that was happening all across the country. Um, the most debated issues were all pandemic related uh, because we had community members with really different opinions on everything from distance learning to masking to vaccinations. And the other big issue that motivated the opposition was related to how to address the declining enrollment and that discussion on the need for school closures and redrawing those school boundaries. Because again, understandably, nobody wants to see their own school get closed, even if that's what can actually help the students have the better educational experience. Prior to the recall attempt, did it ever cross your mind that community members might one day try and petition for a recall? Yes, because they had tried. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, they had tried and they had failed with our board president six months prior. And among our neighboring districts, there were multiple recall attempts happening simultaneously against about eight or nine other board members in three of our neighboring districts. Um, and so it was us, Cupertino, Sar Saratoga, Sunnyvale, Fremont Union. Um, all of us were going through similar recall petitions at the same time. When my recall petition was initiated, the other two uh, women on my board also received their recall petitions in the same week. Um, even what was written in the recall statement wasn't a surprise because a lot of the recall petitions that were going around in our area had very similar language and tactics, especially in the beginning because they all had to do with distance learning and reopening schools and mask mandates and trying to convince the community of a narrative that our districts were choosing politics over children. And then actually later on, we found out that there was an actual playbook that had been created by organizations outside of the district like a step-by-step -step guide for how to file a recall, how to get signatures, and that this was happening all across the country. And so these recall attempts really became a tool to try and pressure school board members to reopen schools or to vote a certain way on pandemic protocols like masks and vaccines. And unfortunately, this has now become a model for how small groups can push their own agendas. 
My particular recall petition was really focused on our decision to close schools because of that declining enrollment. And there were a lot of false accusations about why we wanted to close schools and that false information about our district's financial status and our enrollment issues. It's really not an accident that my colleagues and I were all served our recall petitions right before we were scheduled to vote on school closures. It really was an intimidation tactic because they wanted to send a very clear message that if we didn't vote the way that they wanted us to, they were going to punish us by pursuing this recall. What was it like, both as a school board member, but as a person, to have a recall petition circulating against you in your community, one that you've, you know, even said in this interview that you cared so much about that it's what, you know, pushed you to run for this position? Absolutely. I mean, for me, honestly, the biggest concern wasn't the accusations about me personally, but what was more concerning was the disinformation campaign that was happening about our district, because I knew that that impact would be really bad for the students if the, if the community started really believing the fake news. Unfortunately, recalls have become a tool for legitimizing false information and for targeting public education specifically. I think in my opinion, it's okay for people to disagree with how we decided to solve a problem or how we decide to address an issue, but it's troubling if voters are being misled with false information or distorting the facts about the actual situation that the district is in. So obviously hindsight is twenty twenty, but in the moment, how did that experience of being the subject of a recall affect you? Even though I wasn't surprised when it happened, I think you're never really prepared to see your name on a recall petition, along with all of the straight up lies that are accompanying your name. And so of course it's hard, especially when the recall organizers are out in front of stores and schools and other areas of the community, spreading all of this misinformation about me and my colleagues and casting all of these accusations. The recall never qualified for the ballot, correct? Yes, correct. They have been unsuccessful in qualifying for any of the recalls that they've tried in our district. Uh, in fact, my first recall has already passed the expiration date, and two days later, they actually filed a second recall. So I'm in the middle of my second recall. Our former board president is in the middle of her third one uh, because they are filing them serially within days of the prior one expiring. Are you campaigning against the recall? What were the tactics and campaign arguments of the people supporting the recall against you as they were trying to gather signatures in the community and are now trying to gather them again? So no, I didn't campaign against the recall other than to submit the response statement. Uh, when recallers print their petition for the voters to sign, they're required to print their own statement of recall reasons, but they're also required to print right below it the response statement from the elected official. So I did work on that, basically give information about why this recall was based on false information. And then for the second recall petition, my colleagues and I the three of us who are being targeted, we decided to actually write a shared statement that we put on all of our responses. I think one of the most important things that we wanted our community to know is that the cost of doing a recall election was actually going to be about $1.2 million because it would be a special election and that the district would bear the burden of that cost. Yikes. <laughs> Big number. <laughs> yes. What were the tactics and campaign arguments that the people supporting the recall used against you as they were trying to gather signatures in the community? 
And are they the same now with this new attempt? So the tactics were really based on fear, intimidation, and false information. What we were able to observe is at the end of the day, uh, the group of recallers themselves is pretty small, but they're very, very effective at weaponizing recall petitions and that qualifying the recalls for the ballot isn't always the only intent. When they don't find traction with actually getting signatures, they pivot to using them as a weapon to further divide and to spread an agenda of false information. So the arguments they used uh, were really focused on preying on people's fears. They claimed that residents' home values were going to plummet if their school closed. They claimed that students were going to be stranded with no school to attend. They claimed that schools were going to be overcrowded when, in fact, none of our schools were even coming close to the peak enrollment from a few years ago. And then with the pandemic, they cherry-picked data and falsely claimed that our district was the last to reopen during the pandemic, when in fact, we reopened in the same two weeks as nearly 75% of the districts in our county. Much like what was happening in school districts across the country, they claimed that we were going against science and medical advice when actually we stayed in compliance with our county and with the state public health guidelines at the time. So with that in mind, I mean, having had Survive on Yourself now being headed into a second round of a recall attempt, how do you feel about the concept of recalls? I believe in recalls as a democratic method for voters to address real and significant problems with the way that any elected official is conducting themselves or the way that they're governing. But I don't think that they were ever intended to be used in the way that they're being used now as a way to disagree with somebody in office or disrupt district business or public discourse, or really just try to subvert the will of the majority. I think recalls have become such a pervasive distraction in public education, but also at all levels of elected officials. And so actually, it was really good news last year when the state legislature decided to examine the current recall laws. You know, right now, it only takes 10 signatures, no matter how many voters a district has, to initiate a recall petition. And in the petition statement, there's currently no requirement for veracity or accountability if they use false information. And so without those regulations, voters have no protection from a disinformation campaign that could really cost them millions of dollars or more. At this point, it then becomes a voter's rights issue. Well, thank you so much, Sylvia, for taking the time to speak with us and to tell us about your experience. Uh, We wish you the best. And we just want to sincerely give our gratitude over for you taking the time to be a part of this interview. Thank you so much. It was an honor and pleasure to be able to speak with you today. Despite the gaping holes in how we currently run our recalls, that doesn't mean that it isn't a democratic tool. Many California voters agree that the recall process needs to be fixed, and almost 8 in 10 voters said that the recent Governor Newsom recall was a waste of money. Despite these sentiments, almost 9 out of 10 voters said the recall process is good and should be kept. So how do we keep the recall but make it better? Let's talk about a variety of possible reforms. The first solution is to sync all recall elections to statewide regular elections, meaning ending the practice of holding recalls during standalone special elections and instead hold them in November of even years, when we're voting on everything else. This would do two things. First, it would ensure that recall elections are held at a time when more voters will already be casting a ballot. It increases voter turnout for these important elections. It also cuts down on costs. 
because a city or school board experiencing a recall doesn't have to pay hundreds or thousands or even millions for elections that are held just for the recall. The second solution is to revisit local signature thresholds. The signatures needed to start a recall petition and the signatures needed to qualify a recall for the ballot need to be set such that recall attempts aren't too easy to access, which could make them tools of harassment by a super tiny disgruntled minority, but also not too hard to access, which could take away an important tool of democratic accountability. Signature thresholds should be adjusted according to those goals. And of course, they should continue to differ depending on the jurisdiction's population. Increasing the signature threshold is an often suggested reform for the gubernatorial recall as well. However, successful gubernatorial petition efforts have been rare, especially in a state as large as California. Another type of solution aims to fix the issue of a replacement candidate being voted in without a majority of the votes and thereby producing an undemocratic result, as demonstrated by our prior example with elected official Smith. If there is no majority vote winner on a recall second question, aka the replacement question, there could be a runoff election in which just the two replacement candidates receiving the highest vote totals in the recall election get to run, ensuring one of them has majority support. We could also simply let the official targeted by the recall run among the polls of replacement candidates. If the official being targeted got recalled but won the most votes among the replacement candidates, he or she could stay in office. Or we could tally the replacement ballot using ranked choice voting. That's a method of voting where voters mark their ballots in order of preference, first choice, second choice, third choice, and so on. Ballots are counted in rounds until a candidate has a majority of final votes. But ranked choice voting, my friends, is the subject of a future episode. A California state bill we mentioned earlier, AB 2584, will become law next year. It will consolidate many local recalls with standard election dates and increase the number of signatures needed to start a recall. We're eager to see if that helps improve the local recall. For gubernatorial recalls, different reforms might make sense. Some advocates push for the lieutenant governor to replace the governor if he or she is voted out of office. They argue that this would deter political actors from employing recalls as a way to essentially force a do-over on the campaign for the top seat in the state. Because instead of the pet candidate of the opposition taking office, a well-qualified sitting official would take office instead. This would mean that gubernatorial recalls could still be used to get rid of truly corrupt or incompetent governors without turning the gubernatorial recall into a political football. It's sad to say that the original intent of the recall, a progressive era reform meant to give power to the people, has been distorted and abused. But while reform is needed, some reforms of the recall are good and some are bad. With the right recall reforms, we believe that we can take back a source of power to hold bad officials accountable to the people, to us, while not letting the recall be a tool of harassment or a weapon of minority rule. Finding reforms that make our democracy work? That's the mission of California Common Cause. Thank you for listening to the Democracy Is podcast presented by California Common Cause. We hope you enjoyed our show and that you'll join us next time for our season finale. Research, writing, and editing for this episode was done by our team, which includes Maya Chupkov, Jose Del Rio III, 
Jonathan Metastein, Pedro Hernandez, Kaylin Parache, Kate M., and myself, Alexandra Leal. We would also like to thank former interns Gabby Garland and Josie Miller for their work on this episode. Special shout-outs to Balladopedia, which provided a lot of helpful information on the recall, as well as Sylvia Leong for sharing her experience with us, and Joshua Spivak, a nationally recognized expert on recalls. If you'd like to learn more about the work California Common Cause does, how to get involved, or if you'd like to donate to our work or this podcast, please visit www.commoncause.org forward slash California. You will also find our new webpage dedicated to the podcast where you can learn more about our guests, find recommendations for continued learning from our staff, and explore even more resources. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. Thank you.